So I'm going to uh, start with the question. I don't expect you to put your hands up uh, or say anything, but you'll know the answer to it yourself straight away. Do you read the Bible, perhaps weekly, perhaps daily, or, or just from time to time? Apart from what you hear on a Sunday, are you opening up your Bible and reading it? You know, if you're here and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, but you're here and you have at least have some interest, uh, reading the Bible is one of the most important things you can do in your life because the truth it contains is truly life-changing. I can testify to that and many others here could do the same. If you are a Christian, I'm not trying to, to guilt trip you, uh, but really the Word of God is our, our daily bread. No one can be healthy if they starve all week and just have one meal on a Sunday, no matter how good that meal is. But when we do read our, our Bible, uh, sometimes it can be a little perplexing, especially the Old Testament, especially this Bible passage before us today. So the first question that should be on our mind is, how do I read this text, these words before me? Even if the words are fairly straightforward, it's still an important question. I don't mean do you read them out loud or silently, slowly or quickly. I mean, how do you treat these words? What is your approach to them? Do you read it merely simply out of historical interest because it's a very well-preserved piece of writing from thousands of years ago? It describes how the Israelites lived or were supposed to live. Do you read it as if it's directly written to you today as words you must obey should you happen to seduce a virgin or come across a sorceress? Well, clearly the answer to those two questions is no. It can't be read simply out of academic interest. Neither can it be directly applicable today. So how are we to read it? Well, people write whole books about this. They're called commentaries, and preachers use them to assist them in preparing their sermons. Uh, a useful and more easy-to-use version of a commentary uh, that's much more accessible to, to most people is a good study Bible, and I, I highly recommend having one if you don't already. But keeping it very simple, to read this text, there are three questions we need to think and pray about. Prayer, of course, is very important because it's not just your human mind at work, but the Holy Spirit who illuminates Scripture to us. He shines a light onto the pages of the Bible and onto our hearts to change us to be more like Jesus. One, what were the circumstances of the people in that historical setting? Because this, of course, is an historical document. Two, what was God doing back then with those people? And three, in the same way that God worked back then, how can he work now in my life? So question one is understanding what was going on. This is, this is all part of the unfolding story which runs right through the Bible. Question two is looking for God's heart in what he was doing. God has a heart of love, always seeking the best for his people. That's what other parts of the Bible tell us very, very clearly. And question three is about us. Again, the Bible tells us that every word of Scripture is formed and shaped by the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's good purposes in our lives. Uh, I can give you the Bible references if you want, but I have limited time. I want to focus on this text. But my point is that these three questions are not questions I have imposed on the Bible from the outside. They're questions that the Bible itself leads us to ask. So now we have these questions before us. Let's see how they work in this text from Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 to 31. Now, as you read them, you can see they cover a wide range of ethical scenarios to do with social interaction. They might seem quite diverse, 
uh, but they're grouped together as social laws. Just as the previous section was laws to do with property uh, that Mike preached on last week, and before that when Bobby preached, uh, they were to do with personal injury. So they're grouped uh, together. These ones include marriage and sex, witchcraft, how to treat foreigners, poverty, honoring God, offerings, and being a holy people. Because social, social interaction for God's people, the, the Israelites, relates to God as much as to other human beings. Now, it'd be difficult to preach in all these diverse laws uh, all at once, and you'd be here until late into the afternoon. So what I'm going to do is ask these questions of some of them and show you how to do it. So we'll choose an easy one uh, to start. Verse 21, which says, Do not mistreat or oppress an alien or a foreigner, uh, for you were aliens in Egypt. So, question one, what were the circumstances of the people in that historical setting? Well, the verse does half the work for us, doesn't it? The Israelites had had the experience of being foreigners in a foreign land, and they were treated horrendously. We all know that story, I'm sure, from, later, from earlier in Exodus, and it's been made into movies and so on. But in their new homeland, the Israelites would also have foreigners among them. Israel was not some isolated paradise island. It was the center of major trade routes uh, and surrounded by many nations. So that was their historical setting. Question two, what was God doing back then with those people? Well, he's giving them a version of the golden rule, isn't he? Do to others as you would have them do to you. <coughs> of course, there is a, a caveat to this, a, an exception. Uh, and he's not talking about the Canaanites who were to be destroyed because of God's judgment on their terrible sins. He's talking about people from other nations who just happen to live among the Israelites. Then question three, perhaps the more difficult one. In the same way as God worked back then, how can he work now? Well, this one's fairly simple, I think. Don't mistreat foreigners. But you have to think a little bit about it. Why isn't there a similar command not to mistreat your fellow citizens? Well, it's not hard to figure out. Foreigners are often less powerful. They're often in a weaker position. It's easy to pay them less, abuse their ignorance of how things work around here, not be sympathetic to the fact that they might be speaking a second language, have no appreciation that they're here because it was so hard for them in their home country, or perhaps to be suspicious of them and their intentions because they're perhaps associated with a country or a movement which we see as the enemy. All sorts of fallen human instincts can tempt us to treat foreigners with less favor than people we are more familiar with. That's human nature, fallen human nature. But God says no very clearly in his word. Treat everybody equally. Even if you never had that experience of being a foreigner and being oppressed like the Israelites have had, use some imagination, show some empathy, and understand what it's like to be in their shoes. Don't give in to fallen human instincts. Allow Christ to transform you and do what he said and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And of course, that command to destroy the Canaanites doesn't apply to us today. The command that God has given us is what? Is to share the good news with everybody about Jesus. Another, by the way, this is in the comment on government policy and immigration. That can be a much more complex subject. This is about the personal day-to-day -day encounters with people who are not from here. 
So one verse and so much to learn. Hopefully you can see how something similar could be done with those verses on the poor, the widows and fatherless, the people who need to borrow money. I think we perhaps could stretch that to government policy and say that unethical lending companies should be stopped in their tracks and of course we have seen that happen. But we need to be careful when we're reading the Bible that when we say it applies to somebody else or when we say, oh, the government should be doing something about that, we need to remember that in the first instance it's supposed to transform us to be like Jesus. Jesus who left the infinite riches of heaven to become poor for us. I don't know if you've noticed, but that's the second time I've done that. I've brought Jesus into a text which doesn't directly mention him. But in fact, the whole Bible points us to Jesus. So if there's a fourth question, or a question three part B that we might add, it's how does this relate to Jesus? What he taught us, what he is like, how he shapes our souls. Because remember now, my life, if I'm a Christian, includes Jesus, if I seek to follow him. He becomes the lens through which I must view everything. So continuing that theme of connecting it to Jesus, Let's consider the verse which I think has the strongest connection with Christ. I don't know if you might want to guess what it is. Well, it's verse 31. You are to be my holy people, so do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Well, I could have chosen the previous verse about dedicating the firstborn son. You perhaps can see a quicker connection there. But this one works very well too. Well, how does it work? You may be a bit perplexed if you haven't thought about this one before. Uh, but let's use the questions to find out. Question one, what were the circumstances of the people in that historical setting? Well, God had told them not to eat the meat of animals unless the lifeblood was drained from them. So we know today, of course, that Jews and Muslims still slaughter animals in that way. They drain the lifeblood so that the, the meat is kosher or halal. Uh, an animal torn by wild beasts would not have died in that way. And to eat it would mean disobeying God's law about the significance of blood. And therefore they would not be holy, set apart from what the other ungodly pagan nations around them were doing. Question two, what was God doing then back then? Well, I got a bit of help from my study Bible here. It gave me a cross-reference to Leviticus uh, chapter 17, verses 10 and 12. This is what it says there. God says, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. And that command actually links way back to Genesis chapter 9, where the same command is given. So I hope you're starting to see how this might relate to the next question. In the same way as God worked back then through that command, how does he work now in my life? Well, clearly we don't eat, worry about eating blood and we slaughter animals differently. Uh, and if we like black pudding, of course, we, we eat that uh, too. But why? What, 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 a thing, what has changed? Well, the obvious connection to blood is the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus who gave himself as an atoning sacrifice on the cross for us. And that means all those Old Testament sacrifices are no longer necessary because Jesus has given the perfect sacrifice once 
and for all. So how animals are killed no longer has significance for us because that all pointed to Jesus. And this is an example of the unfolding of the biblical story. If we don't spot that, if we don't realize that, we'll fail to turn the page and still be under the false impression that we need to obey this command. Now, of course, there might be a practical reason not to uh, eat the blood uh, of animals uh, that have been left lying by, by, uh, by the side of the road uh, for hygiene reasons, but it's pointing to the blood. It's not for us to obey today. It's part of the amazing story of Jesus, our Savior. That's why we can't just read these verses in isolation. We have to join the dots to other parts of Scripture. Let's take one last verse, uh, one of the more difficult ones. Uh, verse 18. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Now, why is, why is this a difficult text? Well, first of all, it seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? The death penalty for having a pointy black hat, a cat and a broomstick. Possibly a bit sexist too. Does it mean that male sorcerers were, not, were let off for good behavior? Well, let's ask the questions to understand it and apply it to our lives. Question one, what were the circumstances of the people in that historical setting? Well, the circumstances were, were, were that the, the occult practices were rife in that time. The occult is, is basically about trying to find out and influence the future using uh, those means. So one of the things people did, one of the terrible things they did, was that they sacrificed children in order to try and change the future in their favor. It's unthinkably horrible. Other things they did were they, they would inspect the entrails of animals to try to read the future. They would try to communicate with the dead to try and get information that couldn't be, get, be uh, obtained in any other way, so they thought. And this, uh, these occult practices were uh, some of the specific sins that the Canaanites were to be destroyed for under the judgment of God. That's back in Deuteronomy chapter, or forward in Deuteronomy 18, 9, and 10 uh, specifically mentions that. And that's why the death penalty would have been completely unsurprising to the Israelites when they heard this. So question two, what was God doing back then with, with the Israelites? Well, occult practices were totally at odds with trusting in God and walking in his ways. God who is sovereign over the past, the present, and the future. And God wanted the Israelites to be set apart from the evil practices of the Canaanites. Sadly, of course, uh, they failed. Uh, and one uh, of the, the classic examples of where they failed was their first king, King Saul. Remember what he did? He went and consulted a medium to try to speak to the dead prophet Samuel. That's a hint that it might, be, might have been more common that women were in those roles, uh, which is why this verse might focus on sorceresses. Or it may have been perhaps that they were more likely to put a male sorcerer to death and let a female live. But in Leviticus, there's a command to put both men and women to death who engage in occult practices. So either way, it's not a sexist command. Uh, just talking of sexism, uh, a little aside, verse 16 is not sexist either, the one about seducing a virgin. In an age where women had no protection or standing unless they were under the protection of their father or their husband, this law protected a woman who could have been left outcast with no prospect of marriage because she was no longer a virgin. So it's another example of where questions one and two stop us imposing our modern ideas 
directly in the text without first understanding what God was doing in that ancient culture. But back to the sorceress law and question three. In the same way as God worked back then, how can he work now in my life? Well, as Bobby mentioned a few weeks ago, these laws apply to the nation state of Israel, and there's a difference now to being part of the kingdom of Christ, which goes beyond national boundaries. The death penalty today no longer applies to this and some of the other sins mentioned here. In fact, the death penalty, in terms of the kingdom of God, in terms of the church, uh, translate now in the church age to church discipline. If somebody is found uh, committing some very serious sin, they are excommunicated. They're put outside the church fellowship and their membership is suspended. And even, with, even in that, there's a double intention of keeping the church pure and also in the hope that the person will repent and be restored. That's what we as the people of God do today uh, compared to the people of God uh, when they were the nation of Israel. Of course, uh, governments are, again, different to the church. They might impose different penalties. But again, uh, that's another story, and most of us don't set government policy. But it is interesting, if you think about us in the West, influenced as we are by Christianity, that our criminal justice system reflects the church to a certain extent, both in removing people from society so they can do more, no more harm, and also in trying to rehabilitate them. That's the changed context and culture we live in today. But again, as I've said, that's all very well to say, well, that's those people, and uh, that's the government, or perhaps the, the church elders do those things. What about the personal application to my life? Well, in this specific thing, this specific sin of occult practices has no place in the life of a Christian. Those things must be put to death in a metaphorical sense. No tarot cards, no horoscopes, no occult ways to seek to know or control the future because that dishonors God. Jesus is the one we trust. He is, as it says in the book of Hebrews, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will return and he will bring his judgment on those who do not trust in him. And that judgment is a fate far, fate far worse than the death penalty. But he will also bring his reward for those who walk in his ways, because they have been redeemed, changed by him, rehabilitated from this fallen world, and brought into his kingdom. Well, I hope you found that helpful. It's not necessarily as straightforward as I might have made it seem. Uh, I did draw from my NIV study Bible uh, and also from previous study. And like Bobby and Mike and, and other people who preach have spent a very long time preparing this sermon. But I hope I've shown that even though this text was written so long ago in a different time and place, God's word is life-changing. It's for our benefit and blessing and so that we might bless others, whoever they are, as we read his word and allow the Holy Spirit to use it to shape us to be more like Jesus.